you're visiting, my name is Peter, and I serve on the team of elders that leads the church. And today we're going to press forward in Romans 13 with our preaching series titled Resident Aliens. Now 2020 is a presidential election year. Now if you didn't know that, maybe you're tuned into a better channel than I am. And all the, the, the drama and political filth that's there. I mean, if that is really you and you just didn't know that it's an election year, please, can you please find me after service and lay hands on me that God would restore my brain cells to me because I need that. But here's the heart of our elder team for Romans 13. It's that we as a church would be formed all the more to be a city on a hill. That we know and live out the reality that we are residing here on earth, in earth as it is, temporarily as aliens, in order to fully usher in the eternal reign of our King, Jesus. That his reign, that the kingdoms of this earth would become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ forever. And in the process, for such a time as this, we would live appropriately. And Romans 13 uniquely helps us to do that. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. Romans 13, we'll read verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. Jesus, you are such a great leader and a great man. And you're, you're not just that. You're not just a greater leader and a greater man. You're a whole different category of man and leader. Your love and your leadership are truly out of this world. And so teach us in the the high worship of listening to your word. Teach us to tap into this out of this world love and love you back with that power and that grace and love others in a way that truly fulfills the whole law, the whole meaning of life. We ask for nothing less. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. If you're taking notes, the title of my message is The Debt of Love. The Debt of Love. Now, to reestablish some context, Romans 13 that we're reading this week and last week and next week is the continuation of a long thought that Paul began in Romans 12, verse 1. He was speaking of this strange and countercultural way of living life itself, but really seeing life as it is. A whole different way of living and loving and respecting earthly authorities that's truly 
alien to the way we're born because it requires us to tap into something way greater than earthly effort. We tap into the supernatural grace of God to even live it out. I'm going to give you a rundown of Romans chapter 12, just giving you context before we even build up to verse 8 that we first read. Romans 12 verse 1 says, Because of the mercies of God, you must be a living sacrifice. That's a strange phrase, living sacrifice. In, in essence, because of what Jesus did for you, consider yourself dead to worldly passions, to, to worldly rules, to fleshly battles. In your daily fight of your life is to dominate yourself, self-dominion, self-control. And from any inclination of trying to jump off the altar that you belong on, under the love of Christ. Verse 2. Therefore, no longer can you conform to the carnal ideas and the patterns of this world. Your life is not something that you can dictate how it goes. And, and to understand that daily, you need a whole change of mind. In fact, the Greek word is called a metanoia. It's a miraculous, supernatural change of heart and change of mind. Every day we need that just to even know what life's all about. In fact, to know what God's will is, his perfect will, we need this metanoia. We need all of that. And verse four, that would lead us to think, don't think highly of yourself more highly than you ought to think. In fact, we need a whole different change of thinking to see how God would think about something. Verses four through eight share with us that we're members of one another. We, we, you, your life is not yours. It's that that classic affirmation, my life is not my own. In fact, it's wrapped up in others. To you and to you and y'all, I belong. So check it out. My life isn't just I do the best I can in life. I, I love the best I can. My life belongs to you. Um, I might be a little pinky and you might be like the, the front left cortex. I don't know, but... We belong to each other. We have no right to think of ourselves independently. And this is a pattern, probably in America and all the Western world. Don't conform to that pattern. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Man, for love to be genuine, how many of y'all know we need to disengage from the pattern of this world? The world sees love as maybe convenient at best and it, transactional most regularly, meaning I'll love you if you love me. That's not genuine love according to the Bible. That's a lesser thing. and represents the pattern of this world. Verse 10, it says, outdo others. Verse 10 of chapter 12, still building context. Still haven't even got to our text. Outdo others <laughs> in showing honor. And what it really means is showing someone their true value. That's a supernatural endeavor. Verse 13, show hospitality. There's, there's no good English translation for this word. Hospitality, the word is love for strangers. So my life is meant to wake up and go looking for strangers that I can show the miraculous love of God to. And it just gets weirder as you go on. Redemptively weird. Verse 14, bless those who curse you. Who would say something like this? Bless those who curse you. So we, we are to go find the people who have, in essence, canceled us, right? 
And we find out how can we sacrificially love these people. Verse 15. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We grieve with those who grieve. In essence, allow your emotions to be wrapped up in the emotions of others that you're supernaturally connected to. That's what God expects of us. It's like, man, I can't even get a handle of my own emotions. And yet, I need to find out how I can relate and empathize with others. Yes. Do not be overcome by evil, verse 21 of chapter 12 of Romans says. But, I need some help. Overcome evil with good. Thank you. It doesn't just tell you, don't be overcome with evil. Don't do the bad stuff. It says, conquer evil with good. I was at HEB the other day, and I actually saw a shirt that said, eat, pray, slay. <laughs> don't, you know, we conquer evil with good. It was at HEB. It, I didn't buy it. It was a crop tot. It just, I couldn't make it, couldn't make it fit right. But anyway... I tried. Okay, I didn't. I think it's to it gets to verse chapter thirteen, verses one through seven. We went over last week. Submit to appointed leaders on the earth, meaning arrange yourselves respectfully under the very imperfect leaders in order to advance Christ's kingdom. And to obey and worship and serve Jesus alone. You see what I mean by out of this world type of living? This leads to our passage in verse 8. You can know that God is not expecting us to just love others the best we can. We can do better than our best. We can do his best. In fact, everything leading up to verse 8 shows us that life itself is to be an overflow of eternal life. We were at an elders meeting this week, and Pastor Jess reminded me something I've heard before from John 17, 3, but it's so great. He says, eternal life begins the moment you believe in Jesus. And we can tap into eternal life and live in love according to eternal life. So, with that context, finally... I'm at our, our first verse. Verse 8 starts with this bold imperative. Owe no one anything except to love each other. You see, according to Paul, we are under a great debt of an alien love, a transcendent love that's unlike anything on the earth. And therefore, we can no longer obey our old dead master and be slaves to sin. We can't conform to the patterns of the world and of our flesh and of sin. No, as resident aliens, we tap into the endless and infinite well of Christ's affection, and then we live accordingly. We live out our eternal life. And living in the debt of love, as it says here, in essence, verse 8, the debt of love shows us how we can live, not conforming to the patterns of the world, but responding to the overflowing love of Christ. And Paul understands something about how we live in love versus how we spend money. That's a little bit too infinite, infinite, intimate for our comfort sometimes. 
that there's a correlation between what binds us with our money financially and what constrains us and aims us with the love of God. See, Jesus understood this. He, he didn't need money. Jesus did everything on the earth without necessarily needing money. He, he turned water into wine. That's kind of like an uh, extra economical thing that he did, right? Above economy. Uh, he, he took a little kid's Lunchable, or H-E-B meal simple, and he fed a significant sized city with that. And, and they feasted, and there was overflow. Jesus doesn't need money. And if we follow him, and if we conform to his love and nothing else, we can't arrange ourselves in debt, constrained by, limited by, conforming to anything else. So I want to show you, after stating this bold imperative, owe no one anything except to love one another, the rest of our passage follows a unique pattern that that really plays out this imperative to owe no one anything except love. And I want to show you the pattern that Paul declares about how the entire purpose of life is shown in how we love under the constraints of God's power. It's an ABA pattern. I'll, I'll explain this. The end of verse 8 goes on to say, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And in the next verse, verse 9, the whole law, the Greek word nomos, is summed up in this. This is greater word, the Greek word logos, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, calling to mind what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. And then it, in verse 10, it basically repeats what it said in verse 8. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So sandwiched in this repetition is this greater word, this greater law, if you will, to love others. Now, I'm going to give you some observations that really just provide context and strength to what's already pretty strong. First is the word fulfilling. This word that's mentioned twice, fulfilling, is the Greek word pleroma. Literally means to cause to abound or overflow. And that's why I said that when we tap into Jesus' love, it's too much for us. Jesus loves you too much. Too much. Meaning that there's enough love for you that fills up the accusation of your past, the doubt of your future, the anxiety of your present, and continues to flow so that it has to abound to spill out into others' lives. Jesus loves you. It overflows. Now it says here, this debt of love that overflows and springs up to eternal life, you know, like John 4 says, it fulfills the whole law. The original recipients of this letter probably would have heard the law and thought of something different than what we tend to think of. I think in Western culture, at least in my life, when we think about like fulfilling the law, that doesn't bear a lot of weight in our life. Like we think of the law or laws as like uh, fringe obligations in our life. Like let's, let's make sure that we can kind of fulfill the law so that the real point of life we can really live out. But the original recipients of this letter would have heard the law 
not as fringe obligations to get to the real point of life. They would have heard the law as the whole point of life. So when he says fulfilling the whole law twice, it's in essence saying fulfilling the whole meaning of life is this right here. Love your neighbor. That's why verse 9 even unpacks this other word, this, this Greek word logos. It was a sacred word in Greek culture. In fact, people got killed for using this word logos ineffectively or irreverently according to Greek philosophers. This word logos is super important. The whole law is summed up in this greater word, the the perfect, the the ideal way of living and thinking, the logos. Because look, there's several laws that a person can live out, but the whole supreme, perfect idea for life is this love thing, the everything. Reminds me of another one of the first places that we think of when we think of this word being used. The word, the logos, became flesh and dwelled among us. So you want to know what the whole point of life is? It's love. And you want to know what love is like? He came to us. The whole point of life is therefore to love and to be like Jesus. And to be like Jesus is to love. In fact, this word love, rarely do you see the word agape, which means God's perfect love. It's three different words for love used. We have to ask in this, what is love? What really is it? Uh, shoot, I got the Roxbury song stuck in my head, but moving over. Let's <laughs> try to move fast. Lord, help us to move beyond that. Rarely does three times Paul repeat this sacred word for love. That we are called to love others. In fact, Jesus, when he's restoring Peter, only uses it in his thrice repeating, the three times repeating the call to follow him and to serve others. Do you, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He only says this word agape once, but Paul here is saying it three times. Uses this word. We need to know that the cultural definitions for how we love will never measure up to God's love that pours into us and is meant to fulfill the whole law and flow out of us into eternal life, into others. You want to know what love is like? Let's say something simple. Read the Gospels. I have some some folks in the church that this... This year we start out, but I'm slowing down my Bible reading, and I'm spending the first three months of the year reading the gospel accounts, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and slowing down and considering more carefully, reminding myself of some of the things Jesus did and said. I say all the time, it's too good not to be true. No man can ever make up the brilliance, the beauty, the love, the power of this transcendent person, Jesus. And don't take my word for it. That's what I'm saying. Go read the Bible. Spend time in the Gospels and you'll know what love is. And God willing, this love will well up inside of you like you promised and spill out. The whole point of our lives, in essence, is rightly fulfilling in overflow our debt of love to others. 
And missing the point of life is nothing short than the worst of neglect. In fact, this is the last thing I'm going to observe from these verses. Just to punctuate the debt of love. Toward the end of our passage, Paul gives a pretty alarming corollary relating our failure to fulfill our debt of love, the whole meaning of life, the law itself. If we fail to do that, we're actually, he's saying, doing wrong to others. And here's why I put it that way. Verse 10 says, love does no wrong. If you're reading King James, does no ill. So this suggests that we do wrong in the absence of active love. We, we actually do harm if we neglect to sacrifice for others. This is strong language. Not doing right is doing wrong. Not loving is doing wrong and harm for a Christian, at least. You know, we, remember, we don't just love others the best that we can budget our time and our money. We, we love others with the real value of our life and our time and our money out of the overflow of what God gives us. See, our culture holds us to a standard of just like accepting others. You know, tolerance has been the big word for the last decade or two. We've got to tolerate other people. Well, of course, I want to tell you, we have to tolerate other people. But the Bible calls us to so much more than that. It calls us to love and to sacrifice. There, there were people who tolerated me, but then there were people who loved me with Jesus' love and told me of the gospel that could conquer my sin that I was tolerating and showed me new life. Our mission is to love and not simply tolerate. We go on hunting expeditions. Psalm 23, my favorite psalm. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me, will hunt me down all the days of my life. He sends people into my life to hunt me down with his love. That's, if we are fulfilling the law of life, that's what our life is for. It's the only driving force that should dictate the course of our life and how we spend time and money. It's his love. And that's why let's go back to this blanket imperative at the very start, this big statement, owe no one anything except to love one another. What might, considering all these things, what the whole point of life is, what might this big debt of love, this call to love, the, love others, have to do with how we spend our money and our time? Let's be brave to face some redemptive discomfort about how we spend money and time when held up to our job to show the love of Christ, the pure love of Christ to others. Remember, if we're to follow Jesus, Paul says that there's nothing that can hold sway over our our obedience to him, nothing that we can conform to that would take us away from what he's already told us to do. Elsewhere, Jesus, remember, taught that Money uniquely has the power to do that. Remember he said, do not be slaves to manna. He said, no one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other or despise the one, be devoted to the other. He knows that money uniquely has the power to do this. And it's it's simple. Money is a representation of what we value in life with our time. I think that's why Paul's saying in here, Christian, 
Don't let debt or how you spend money or what you do with your career tell you something about how your life is supposed to go that goes against what I've already told you. He's saying, Christian, you're already in debt. And don't let anything else, any other arrangements that you make with time or money, placate or kind of redirect what I've already told you about who you are and what life is for and fulfilling the whole law really is. I'll give an example of this. When, when, I, when I apply for a loan, I go to the bank and I fulfill, I fill out a, a loan application. One of the huge things that, can, that, that will tell a bank whether or not they're going to loan me money, one of the things I'm going to put on that loan application is what? Is what debts do I already have? So think of it this way, Christian. You already have been given the bank. Jesus has already given you everything to meet your needs in life. And on top of that, he's given you a call and a mission for a short time residing on this earth and a debt of love that should dictate how our life goes. And any other debt that we take on with our time or money should not get in the way of that. Proverbs 22, remember, the debtor is slave to the lender. So this means that we are slaves of the love of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says says it this way, for the love of Christ constrains us because we judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. It's very similar to Romans. And yet I've seen, in my experience, so many... Young people, young and old, student loan debts. I see a lot of young people who don't know any better, never been taught any different, that I should just take on as much much loans as as I possibly can in order to finish the degree. Never thinking about, okay, well, how am I going to pay this off and how will that affect my family? How will this affect my ability to serve God and do what he's called me to do? We don't don't think about it enough. And I see lives that are sidelined, callings, Ability to fulfill the whole law that's sidelined by not thinking about this. And I tremble at this idea because I'm in, a, in one sense at least, just another American with a mortgage. For so many Americans, it's our mortgages and the debt that we take on trading a certain lifestyle for how we're supposed to live. We, we take on this debt and it really does often choke out our ability to do what God's called us to do in loving others. This is why I always say that one of the gifts that God gives us is tithing. Tithing, remember, Jesus doesn't need your money. And tithing primarily isn't so that the church can pay our bills. Tithing is primarily a gift to me, showing me that if if I can give him my first fruits, then I am sowing a seed, hedging against any other constraints, against tying myself down to other things beside what God's called me to. Now, it doesn't fix everything. It's just what I say is a gift. Let me demonstrate this, this call to love. Psalm, I need you to lend me $20. Can you? Can you stand up here? So, <laughs> so because Morgan Stevens that's at Mosaic did a, did a uh, 
demonstration like this uh, at Mosaic, but, but he used a hundred dollar bill because he had it. I had zero, so I'm, I'm doing the reverse demonstration with your money. So I just borrowed $20 from you, right? So I am in debt to you. Uh, maybe I need this $20 or I think I need it to do something with my life. And I said, that, that's something that I'm going to spend this $20 is worth to me going into debt to a brother in order for me to do that, okay? Now, let's just say, for instance, that this, this is just mine now, okay? If you, if you said you have something you need to go do and you need $20, and you were to take that, well, that would mean that you're in debt to me because I, I just made that mine just by, by declaring it, right? I declare bank, I declare this is mine, right? So you would be my debtor. Now let's say this. Office references. Let's say this. Let's say this is mine, but I said, hey, Saul, I need you to take this $20 and I need you to give it to Raquel. Now go do it. Stop, stop, stop. Right now in this moment, before giving it to her, Psalm is in debt to me for money that he needs to give to her. Think about that for a second. Lord, help us open our eyes to see our life. Church, Jesus has met all your needs. He's paid off all of your past debts for our sin. He has given you more than you need for your life to provide for you. And he will show you time and time again. But then he gives you exceedingly and abundantly more. Does he not? Can we not claim that promise? And he says with this overflow, I'm going to give you enough to not meet your needs, but to meet the whole law, your whole, the whole point of your life. I will give you enough for. And go therefore and make disciples. Go therefore and make investments. Owe no one anything except the debt of this love to go and make disciples. And so as you do, and as I've given you my love, thank you, Saul. As I've given you my love, you are debtors to the world. We are in debt to the whole world because of what God has given us and what belongs to them if we have faith that he's met all our needs and he's provided for this. The love that comes to us is meant to also run through us. We are to be vessels of his love. If we are objects of his love, we are also debtors of his love. And I'll be honest with you, I'm often uncomfortable with this. I, I pray that I can have peace even when I have discomfort, when I'm thinking about how I spend my money. And I can never say, oh, I've done more than enough for uh, foster children and uh, crisis pregnancy, or I've done enough. I've done my part to give to the poor. No, I... I hope that I can hold with an open hand what God has given me not to possess, but to steward. My life is not my own. My money is not my own. God, help me to rightly play out my debt of love. And 
the grace of God is such that so often, how, much, how often will God see you failing to go hunt others down? And so he'll just bring the needs to you. How often, how, how seldomly do we see those moments, those inconveniences as a gift to us? Uh, I am grateful that Jesus gave us a building where people live around us in the, in the middle of the city here with great needs. Because maybe I have a greater need to fulfill the law, the, the meaning of life, than even their needs for things. And maybe their needs is more about my need and your need. So last week, I'll tell you a story. I, I was preparing my sermon for the first part of Romans 13, and I was nervous about it. I was, I was stepping into some political waters. I'm like, how do I, how do I manage this and offend everyone in, in right measure, including myself? And uh, quite honestly, I was, uh, I was uh, uh, procrastinating. And uh, a man that lives around here in the neighborhood that, that uh, had some needs, he came and knocked on the door pretty aggressively. And I got up and he asked me if he could give him, I could give him a ride across town. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll do that. And so I, I got in my car and we're driving across town. And this man, we, we do not share the same uh, background. We grew up on a different geographical places in the world, different economic backgrounds. Uh, different privileges that, that I manage versus him, different ethnic stories. And so we're in the car, and I, and I asked him a question. I said, hey, what do you wish you would have known when you were my age that you know now? And he says, no joke, he says, I wish I would have studied political things more to know how they affect me. And in that moment, I got to just hear his heart about just things that he thinks about the world and honestly I, I wasn't trying to like get agreement with him about things but at least what I knew what blessed my heart so much is that we at least share a common sadness about the state of the world as it is right and, and I was sharing a sadness slash a nervousness about what to say from the word of God that week and we at least got to share that and maybe maybe God doesn't want us to share agreement with political things. Maybe there's something better than that anyway. That we can share a sadness for this thing. It's not the logos. It's not the ideal. We can actually see our, the, the lack of peace in the world and find rest in God together. It's like the Northern African uh, church father, Augustine, said, our hearts are not at rest until they find rest in you, God. And, and we found a peace in that moment together. So often my imperative to love others is really receiving love from God. Now, you might say, Pastor Peter, well, that's great for you. You, you know, you, you hang out at church all day, and that's like your job, so you do church things like that. But what about me? Like, I, I work all day. I work all week. Let me ask you, what inconveniences has God blessed you with? In your neighborhood, in your job, what inconveniences has he blessed you with? And maybe, do, do you need his help to see that this is from God to help you fulfill your debt of love. Consider, as we draw to a close, the example of Belle Bomfrey. Many of y'all have heard of her story, and I'm going to remind you yet again. Belle was born into slavery in New York in 1797. She grew up speaking Dutch, and then she also took on English at age nine because she's smarter than 
most of us. She was bilingual by age nine. And before her 30th birthday, she escaped slavery with her infant daughter and into freedom. At the time, this was really unusual. But then her story got even more strange. The next year, in 1828, she returned and risked her life and her freedom to legally win custody of her, one of her other young sons out of slavery. This was the first time a black woman had won such a court case against a white man. And so she was free, according to the laws of the land. But see, this is where the story gets even more redemptively unusual as she would later share that she was constrained by a higher law. She was constrained by her debt of love, we could say. And she felt called by God to join abolitionist preachers in the North and risked so much to love those in bondage in the South. And she delivered a famous speech. And four times she said, ain't I a woman as well, in essence? She knew about the debt of love and she knew that her life and her comforts that she was enjoying were not just hers to keep to herself, but things to be traded because she was a pilgrim temporarily residing here as an alien, a citizen of a higher kingdom. And she was willing to make that trade to fulfill the law, the mission, the the reason for living. In fact, she changed her name to reflect her new identity as a pilgrim, a sojourner of truth. Sojourner truth. See, above all, the example of Jesus is meant to remind us and give us ability to live differently than the patterns that we would otherwise conform to on the earth. And when we consider what he did, he said, remember what I did. Remember, as we go to communion, he's telling us to remember with our minds and remember with our, our, our taste. We are to remember with who we are, what he's done. And that sort of remembering provides a, an emptying out of sin and a filling up of his grace that kind of reminds us of who he is and gives us new grace to overflow. And I want to do something to remember Jesus that's a little different than normal. I want us to sit just where you are and close your eyes. And I want to read to you a reminder of who Jesus is and what he did. And ask the Holy Spirit to give you new eyes for your life and for your love. Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let every one of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.